and welcome to Cameo Lessons Learned About King Rolor, where we talk provider to provider about the clinical application of the drug King Rolor. I'm your host, Jennifer Reimer, the principal investigator behind the Cameo Registry Analysis and an assistant professor at the Duke University School of Medicine. This podcast is funded by Kiesi, an international research-focused pharmaceutical company and healthcare group. The episode one learning objectives are to discuss the use of Kangrelor in patients with myocardial infarction, to discuss the transition of Kangrelor to an oral P2Y12 inhibitor, to discuss the overall objectives of the Cameo registry, and lastly, to examine the initial published findings of the Cameo registry. My disclosures include advisory board and research funding from Kiesi, research funding from Adorcia, and research funding from Pfizer Pharmaceuticals. For Jeff Washam, disclosures include a research grant support from Kiesi. Let's discuss. So it's my pleasure to introduce one of my dearest colleagues, Jeff Washam. He's a clinical pharmacist at Duke. He manages the pharmacy group within our CICU group. He and I have rounded together for years, and he is joining me today to talk a lot about both the use of King Relore and some interesting findings that we have looked at and been examining from the Cameo registry recently. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Jen. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's sort of set the stage and have you do a little bit of an overview about the current clinical guidelines for use of oral P2Y12 inhibitors and even Kangrelor, according to, to the most recent guidelines within the MI population and among patients undergoing percutaneous coronary interventions. Thanks, Jen. I think the most recent guidelines that are pertinent to the agents that we'll discuss today are probably the 2021 ACC AHA Sky Guidelines for Coronary Artery Revascularization. And in these guidelines, they start out as far as antiplatelet antithrombotic therapy, and I would like to first look at the oral antiplatelet recommendations. And these guidelines provide a class one recommendation for loading of aspirin and continuation of aspirin at a maintenance dose for reduction in ischemic events. Similarly, a class one recommendation is provided for loading oral P2Y12 inhibitors and continuation of a daily dose in patients with acute coronary syndrome. Now, in the text of the guidelines, there's some statements that are made that I think are pertinent to the discussion we'll be having today as far as the timing. And the text actually reads, and this is a quote, a loading dose of P2Y12 should be given to minimize the time to platelet inhibition. There are conflicting data on the benefits of pretreatment with P2I12 inhibitor before the anatomy is known, in particular with patients with non-ST elevation acute coronary syndrome. In contemporary times, with most patients with ACS undergoing early angiography, a strategy of loading with P2I12 inhibitors after the anatomy is known appears to offer similar benefit to preloading. And the reason I bring that up is it's pertinent as we get further into discussion with Kangalore, the pharmacodynamics and the kinetics, and the need for specific specific timing of discontinuation of the Kangalore with relation to oral loading of certain P2I12 inhibitors. Continuing on through the guidelines are the IV 2B3A inhibitor agents, and the guidelines provide a class 2A recommendation for the use of 2B3As in patients with large thrombus burden or no reflow during the PCI procedure. If 2B3As are used, patients can receive oral P2I12 inhibitors before or during or even after the infusion of the 2B3A inhibitor. And again, that's relevant as we continue the discussion on Tecangalor. Now, these guidelines provide a Kangalore guided line recommendation of 2B in patients undergoing PCI 
who are P2Y12 naive. Kangor is a unique agent. It's a reversible, potent, quick-acting IV P2Y12 inhibitor. And really the unique thing, and I think some of the things that make it unique to use and also have contributed a little bit to the difficulty and use it at the time of transition, maybe, is the short pharmacokinetic half-life. It has a half-life of approximately three to six minutes, which leads to kind of a total overall duration of antiplatelet effect when discontinuing the PCI infusion of about one hour. So these are kind of some of the overall guideline recommendations for the adjunctive antiplatelet therapy in patients undergoing PCI. When looking at this, it really presents a lot of opportunities for thinking about how we can best use these agents in the contemporary management of patients undergoing PCI, and especially in patients with acute coronary syndrome undergoing PCI. I want to turn it back over to you, Jen, and get a little bit of your thought in the planning of the Cameo Registry and what some of the initial objectives were. Thanks, Jeff. And that was a great overview of oral P2Y12 inhibitors, as well as other agents such as Kangrelor and the glycoprotein 2B3A inhibitors in a lot of the patients we care for. You and I both have taken care of a lot of MI patients. I'm an interventional cardiologist, so take care of them both in the cath lab and then subsequently after potentially undergoing PCI. And you certainly take care of them post-PCI when you're trying to deal with a lot of transitions of pharmacologic therapy, making sure that they're on all of the evidence-based, guideline-based therapies in the CCU and then subsequently. And I think one of the things that we were starting to notice both at my home institution and other institutions around the country was that there was a little confusion around the use of Kangrelor. So Kangrelor is an excellent agent for many of the patients I take care of that may come to the lab. They need an urgent or emergent percutaneous coronary intervention or PCI. But unfortunately, time just hasn't allowed for them to get an oral P2Y12 inhibitor. They may have had sudden onset of chest pain. They come to our emergency department, then we take them upstairs as quickly as possible. And so when you're implanting a stent, there's always the concern in the back of your mind, you know, what is the level of antiplatelet therapy that's on board currently? Is it enough to keep the patient from experiencing stent thrombosis or other ischemic outcomes as a result of not having adequate antiplatelet therapy? And commonly, what has been done sometimes in the past has been to try to load the oral P2Y12 inhibitor therapy sometimes when the patient is on the table, they're lying flat. Oftentimes, these patients are very sick. Many of our patients come intubated or with a breathing tube in. They're not able to take in oral medications. Many of them are in cardiogenic shock. And as you're aware, Jeff, unfortunately, in cardiogenic shock, we're not absorbing medications like we would normally when our gut is able to adequately transit through both our, our PO intake and our oral intake. So there's a lot of concerns, I think, about the strategy of just giving oral medications when on the table or, or subsequently right after the procedure. And so Kangrelor is, is a great strategy, I think, to help with these patients where there is a concern. So the initial objective of the Cameo Registry was to look at Kangrelor use throughout the United States at a variety of different centers. We included a total of 12 centers, and these were not only centers like Duke, large academic medical centers, but also geographically diverse centers that are a little bit smaller, community-based centers. And so we tried to look at the use across a variety of different settings. And our primary objective was really to understand how Kangrelor is being used and what patient population 
from a perspective of what characteristics the patients have that are getting Kangrelor, how it's being utilized, how patients are being administered it, both in the cath lab and subsequently after the cath lab. And then what is the transition of Kangrelor to an oral P2Y12 inhibitor look like? You and I have discussed recent cases where there's a bit of a confusion, I think, between Kangrelor and other medications like eptifibatide or your glycoprotein 2B3A inhibitors or even heparin. And people don't oftentimes understand the short half-life. And so there's sometimes a turning off of the Kangrelor without adequate transition. So the Cameo registry was in part put into place and established in order to answer many of these questions. One of the first topics I really want to dive into is our initial publications from the Cameo registries. Recently published within the last year, the initial question was, how is it being used? How is it being transitioned? And overall, what are the patient characteristics of the patients that are, are receiving Kangrelor? And so I wanted to talk to you about a couple of the findings because I think some of them are very, very interesting. So one of the findings was that over 16% of patients, and these are patients who have had a myocardial infarction or a heart attack, so very sick patients, over 16% of them had a greater than one hour gap between when Kangrelor was stopped and when they get an oral P2Y12 inhibitor. And, and what do I mean by that? I mean clopidogrel or prazogrel or ticagrelor. And so I wondered from a pharmacist's perspective, when you come in, say, the next morning or when you're reviewing patient charts and you see that the king ruler has been stopped and there's been a greater than one hour gap until when an oral P2Y12 inhibitor is loaded, what are your thoughts and what are your concerns for the patient? It's very concerning because that's a very high risk window immediately after the procedure, immediately after the angioplasty and the stent placement probably a prothrombotic state overall if adequate antiplatelet therapy is, is not continued with a newly placed stent. And to take maybe a half step back, as you kind of touched on, the labeled guidance for cangrelor dosing in the United States at the current time essentially says that ticagrelor, which is a reversible P2Y12 inhibitor, can be loaded at any point during the cangrelor PCI infusion during that two-hour window, whereas clopidogrel and prasugrel which are irreversible inhibitors of the P2I12 receptor. To use these agents, you should wait till the end of the two-hour infusion and then load immediately after and upon discontinuation of the infusion. So with that being said, when we come in and we see a delay of one hour, one and a half hours, especially if the agent that is being transitioned to is clopidogrel, which even with a higher 600 milligram loading dose, takes a two to three hours to have peak effect, then you're looking at an overall window of somewhere probably between one and three hours of inadequate platelet inhibition. You went through a number of clinical factors in patients coming in, higher risk patients that really can lead to more of a delay and maybe even a slower onset of oral medications. And one thing that we routinely do even in our cath lab for comfort is we provide fentanyl or an opioid during the procedure to lessen the pain, especially with respect to vascular access. Those, again, are agents, morphine, even fentanyl, have been shown to reduce the time of onset of oral P2I12 inhibitor therapy, and that includes for not just clopidogrel, for other agents as well. So I think that high-risk window immediately after discontinuation of the cangrelor is a very concerning time to make sure systems are in place and processes are in place for the smooth transition of cangrelor to be 
discontinued and clopidogrel or prasugrel to be given immediately and or for ticagrelor to be administered while that two-hour infusion window is still continuing to allow it to go ahead and begin to have an onset effect. Yeah, I think those are great points. And, and in fact, what we saw was that when ticagrelor was the agent that the patient was being transitioned to, there was much less of a gap. But when you were talking about clopidogrel, over 50% of the patients, in fact, had a gap. And many of those patients did not actually even get a full load of clopidogrel, which is also concerning. And, you know, I think one of our hypotheses was that we're all really comfortable with giving ticagrelor after cangrelor. If we're running a cangrelor infusion within the cath lab, when the PCI is done, if the patient is able to swallow, we'll turn the infusion off and immediately give the ticagrelor at that point. Or with even some overlap, oftentimes I'll go ahead and load them then turn it off. And I'm not concerned about any sort of cross-reactivity. I think where a lot of the discomfort comes is with clopidogrel and prasugrel, as you discussed. And that's certainly where we saw a lot of opportunity for potential, I think, negative outcomes to come for our patients when they're perhaps leaving the cath lab, they're going back to the unit. In essence, sort of out of the domain of the interventionalist and of the cath lab team at that point, and maybe in an area where there's not as much familiarity with the half-life of cangrelor and sort of the pharmacokinetic and interactions between cangrelor and the various oral P2Y12 inhibitors. If you were talking to interventional cardiologists, what would be your recommendations if for some reason the patient can't get ticagrelor? What should we be doing with clopidogrel and prasugrel? Or, or what, what do you tell our interventionalists and our cardiologists at Duke to do? Yeah, I think in situations where maybe a patient was recognized after the PCI while the cangrelor infusion is still going in, maybe they're on a home oral anticoagulant for an indication such as AFib or DVT. And the treatment team or the rounding team has more comfort using clopidogrel in that patient rather than a more potent agent such as ticagrelor. Then I think really the thing that we have to focus on is, again, the process of making sure that the meds are administered at the appropriate time. And that process begins, as you and I both know, and it's one of the hardest things when people are transitioning across different areas of the hospital is excellent communication. When we make the transition, there should be a sign out from the cath attending to the CCU attending or fellow in the CCU in our process. Or to the floor, it should be from the cath techs and nurses that take the patients over, along with the interventional fellow to the rounding team. And you've got to include the bedside nurses in this because those are the providers that are turning off the cangrelor and they have to know to administer the oral P2Y12 at that moment. Their involvement in the discussion and communication is, is integral so it doesn't fall through the gaps. I think you bring up a good point. And I think one of the key components of this registry is it's a quality improvement registry. So the whole point of it was to study various sites and, and how they're administering and using Kangrelor and figure out if there's sort of local practices that can be put into place either via the investigators, local practices occurring around the electronic health record or within the pharmacy group to help try to improve these transitions. Now, one of the things I was most struck by in our results was that we, we put together a definition for what appropriate, so to speak, kangrelor use is. And that's appropriate via the clinical trial evidence and what currently the package dose labeling is for kangrelor. And that means that the kangrelor is given for two hours or the time period over which the PCI duration is occurring. That means that there's timely 
loading of an oral P2Y12 inhibitor according to what our recommendations currently are means that the patient's actually getting the appropriate load of an oral P2Y12 inhibitor and that there's not a significant gap between Kangrelor and that oral P2Y12 inhibitor. When we looked at all of those factors, and one of the great parts of this registry is we have all of that dosing and administration timing within the, the clinical report form. So we're able to pull that data. When we looked at that, we found that only about 27% of patients, and this is roughly over 2,000 MI patients in the United States, we now have well over 3,000 patients within the registry, only 27% were getting Kangrelor and getting transitioned appropriately. And so I think there's a huge opportunity to help improve how this drug is being administered in centers around our country. And so one of the things I'm excited about and aspects of the registry that's now been extended into is, is now we're working on a phase three component of the registry where we're involving local leaders, local pharmacy leaders, the investigators, and trying to come up with what practice patterns at each site would ensure successful administration of Kangrelor. Is that through increased education? Is that through posters in the cath lab or on the wards? Is that through an electronic health record change? So trying to figure out what quality improvement initiatives can actually be put together to help improve administration that's safe. So from your perspective, you know, what role do you think pharmacists can play in trying to improve the administration? And, and what are sort of the challenges of trying to build in anything from an electronic health record perspective to try to make this transition safer? Yeah, I think pharmacists are the experts in the medication use process. And that means from the ordering to the delivery, it has to be available to the administration and understanding the timing. But I think what's unique is, as you said, we have a variety of different types of facilities that are participating in the registry, from smaller community-based to larger academic medical centers. And what's unique is each one of those probably has a unique solution. But I think it, it all starts with understanding the process for medication administration, delivery, and communication at each center. And I think local pharmacists, as we're trying to do, I think we have a group of six or seven from across the registry, and we're going to come together and look at our own institution and then kind of look at each other's institution and take our experiences for what we may be able to see within their process that may help facilitate better concordance as far as the dosing of not only the Kangalore, but then also the transition to the appropriate P2I12 at the appropriate time. From an electronic perspective, you know, setting up order sets is something that can be done without much difficulty in some of the currently available medication electronic health records. One of the concerns may be is you don't want to get too restrictive with it. So, for instance, at our own institution, we don't have a two-hour absolute cutoff window built on the or infusion, and that is because if somebody gets started on that and then they develop post-PCI nausea and they can't take it, we want people to be thoughtful about what should we be doing about continuing some amount of antiplatelet effect on this patient rather than just turning it off and waiting till the nausea resolves. So I think we want to be aware of the two-hour cutoff, and we are. We're very aware of it. But I think you don't want to be too prescriptive and restrictive in your kind of structure to avoid what may be less common but potentially catastrophic events in the situation that maybe a less experienced provider doesn't have the insight to understand that if you turn it off, 
it's going to be gone in an hour. That's the Kangalore. Those are great points. And, you know, I think some other areas to highlight that are really unique to this registry is what we saw certainly in the first paper and what we're currently also seeing as the registry continues to grow. And now, like I said, well over 3,000 patients enrolled across 12 U.S. sites is that the registry and what we're seeing in the use of Kangalore in the United States is it's largely a marker for the sicker patient. We have quite a few patients that came in with Killip class four that come in with a presenting feature of cardiogenic shock, administered Kangalor, patients with thrombus noted during their PCI, patients with lots of comorbidities, prior MI, prior congestive heart failure, current congestive heart failure, prior cabbage, peripheral vascular disease, all of those patients with lots of those comorbidities, in many cases more likely to get Kangralor. You have to think it's largely in part due to the fact that this is not their first trip necessarily to the cath lab. They likely have more complex disease and there is more of a concern for having adequate antiplatelet therapy on board. That brings me to our next discussion and next topic. And I won't dive too much into this because I don't want to give away a lot of the details from what we're looking at in our current analysis. But Jeff, I know that you've looked over the the recent SWAP5 analysis published by Dr. Angela Lillo and his colleagues at the University of Florida. I wonder if you would talk a little bit about that study and then maybe I can talk about what our analysis is going to be looking at that will be coming out this year. Yes, thanks, Jen. The SWAP5 trial was a randomized crossover pharmacodynamic trial that was designed to assess the impact of Kangalore in patients pretreated with Ticagrelor. 20 patients with stable coronary disease received either a 180 milligram loading dose of Ticagrelor followed in one hour by a bolus and infusion of Kangalore or a 180 milligram loading dose of Ticagrelor followed in one hour by a bolus and infusion of placebo. The Kangalore and placebo infusions were continued for two hours. The primary outcome of this study was platelet aggregation two hours after the discontinuation of the infusions as measured by the Verify Now test, and the results showed that there was no significant difference for Kangalore versus placebo at this time point. In addition, a secondary pharmacodynamic outcome of platelet aggregation at both 30 minutes and one hour after the bolus administration showed that significant reductions in PRU at both time points existed with Kangalore as compared to placebo. This study provides some valuable pharmacodynamic data to better describe the antiplatelet effect both during and after the infusion in Ticagalore pretreated patients because while the labeled guidance for Kangalore in the U.S. is to not use in patients pretreated with an oral P2I12 inhibitor, we do know from real-world observations from registries that pretreatment prior to Kangalore is not that uncommon. That's excellent. So I think because of that study and certainly because of what we saw within the registry, so we saw this group of patients when we were looking through our data, they were already on some home oral P2Y12 inhibitor, whether it be clopidogrel, prasugrel, ticagrelor, or had gotten maybe if they were a non-STEMI patient, maybe had gotten an oral P2Y12 inhibitor at some point during the hospitalization, but then got Kangrelor during the catheterization. You may ask, well, why would you get Kangrelor? Why would you be administered Kangrelor if you're already on an oral P2Y12 inhibitor at home or if you've already gotten into the hospital? 
And I think in many cases, I'm taking certainly patients with ST elevation, myocardial infarction to the cath lab and their medication list an oral PTY12 inhibitor. I don't know what their compliance rates have been. You and I certainly know that the compliance for oral PTY12 inhibitors after previous MIs drops precipitously at that six-month mark post-MI. I don't know if they've been compliant on it. I don't know for sure when the last time they took it. And so that's a lot of risk to sort of take on going into oftentimes very big interventions and, and really not being assured if they have adequate antiplatelet therapy. So there's a sizable group within our registry that's getting upstream or what I'll say is upstream PTY12 inhibition and then getting kangrelor during the catheterization. You know, and I think in certainly at CRT, which is coming up at the end of February this year in Washington, D.C., we're going to be talking about some of the initial findings from this analysis, looking at concomitant upstream oral PTY12 inhibitors with downstream kangrelor and a lot of the bleeding outcomes and a lot of the predictors of when patients are being administered kangrelor in that particular population. So we'll talk a little bit about those results. We'll also be highlighting, I think, a lot of the results from our sizable population within the registry with cardiogenic shock, our sizable population of patients who are undergoing complex high-risk PCI or CHIP interventions, and what's the or administration for those patients within the United States. So I think the registry is just really a wealth of information, and I'm excited for future podcasts to talk about many of these topics. So thanks, Jeff, for being here today, and really appreciate this great conversation about this initial publication from Cameo. Thank you for having me. We hope you found this episode informative. You can obtain CME credit for listening to this episode via the Duke Continuing Educational website. Visit the Duke One Link Continuing Education website and search for Cameo in the Find a Course field. See you next time here on Cameo Lessons Learned About Kangaroo Lore.